Hi, it's Mona Charon. Uh, before we get to the podcast, I just want to let all of our listeners, all of Charlie's listeners know that The Bulwark is offering a free 30-day trial to Bulwark Plus. If you become a member, you are entitled to all kinds of secret joys, including two secret podcasts a week, one with JVL and Sarah Longwell, the other with Charlie and me. You will get access to all of our newsletters. All of this is available for a free 30-day trial. Just go to thebulwark.com backslash secret. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. This is Mona Charon. I am the host of a different podcast usually called Beg to Differ, also brought to you by the Bulwark. But today I am filling in for the great Charlie Sykes, who is on vacation, and we are doing our end of the year gala podcast with the big stars of the Bulwark. So we have with us this morning Jonathan Last, Tim Miller, Bill Crystal, and Sarah Longwell. Welcome, one and all. I didn't know it was a gala. Yeah, it's a gala, and we have you know we are we're excited, we're we're pumped. I love a good morning gala. (laughs) (laughs) So I would like to start with a big verdict that came down this week. Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of um, uh, sexual abuse of minors and uh, and taking you know basically grooming teenage girls uh, for Jeffrey Epstein. And it seems to me that we've had a lot of good verdicts this year. That's one good thing that we can take out of 2021. Tim, let me start with you. Do you think justice was done here? Yeah, thank God. I mentioned it this morning in my 2021 Not That Bad newsletter, um, which is about the most uplifting of the 2021 uh, recaps that I've read. And uh, yeah, I think that we should all just raise a glass and toast. Uh, This is a wonderful victory. Justice has been done. Hopefully she rots and stays alive uh, in jail. I I guess my only uh, caveat to that is it does seem as if uh, a lot of the co-conspirators managed to stay under wraps during the various trials. Uh, you know, obviously there has been uh, re- reveals of the people who were on the plane and which seems to have been a bipartisan affair of Trump's and Clinton's and others. But, uh, you know, had, had she participated more in the trial, you know, maybe we could have ferreted out a few of the other uh, abusers. But um, but it, as the verdict stands, I think this is this was a good one. And to your point, I, I think that just generally over the course of the year, it, you know, we had a lot of potentially tumultuous verdicts. Obviously, the Rittenhouse one ended up being tumultuous, but I think on balance, probably right. But um, we avoided, I think, a lot of, well, A, uh, justice not being done, but B, potential public street outrage over, over the verdicts that they knock on the way that they did. I'm going to bring in Sarah uh, because Sarah, there is one possible co-conspirator who's in the news over across the pond. I I took a quick glance at the Daily Mail this morning, and uh, you can imagine that it's all about Prince Andrew's uh, vulnerability in light of the verdict. But uh, but say anything you want about the verdicts that we've seen this year, about this one, whatever you like. Yeah, so I don't follow the royals very much, so I'm not really sure. Uh, I totally agree with Tim, though, that one of the most frustrating things about the whole the Epstein affair is that Epstein, because he 
killed himself or didn't. I don't really know. I don't really understand that whole conspiracy. But he evades justice, at least the people's justice. And all of the people, I mean, the the number of names that were associated with Epstein in this scandal, Dershowitz, the prince, the Clinton, I mean, Trump, like, uh, (laughs) I would like to know who the men were who were availing themselves of this particular kind of Epstein hospitality. Uh, it, It feels to me like we just didn't get any answers there, and it, it it's it's really frustrating. I will say that though, just on the broader point about good verdicts, I mean, we the it is the 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 courts have been a good counter to bad public sentiment in different ways. But the the beginning of the year was you know a bunch of lawyers running around saying that an election was stolen. Um, and what was the name that they had for them at the beginning? There was some brigade of some kind. That just elite out- Strike Force. Strike Force. Elite Strike Force. Strike Force. The Elite Strike Force. Uh, not particularly elite. The courts slapped them down at every turn, no matter how, what high percentage of um, Republicans currently believe that the election was stolen. The courts gave them no purchase, including plenty of people who were appointed by Trump. Um, and so that was good. And, and I think that the courts... Um, have have been kind of a last bastion for us as as the culture deteriorates. Um, but those things are downstream, so we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, I guess it is worth saying that a lot of these abusers do rely on women accomplices to find and and soften up their their victims. And uh, and it's 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 good to see that somebody was finally held to account for something like this. Um, I mean, Mona, I, it's JBL. Yes. I, I gotta say, if I, if I was a, on the feminist left, I would find it amazing that in the most notorious underage procurement scandal in the history of the 21st century, at least the only person who goes to jail over it is a woman. Well, the man is dead. something, right? I well, mean, the man none is of the, dead. The, the man is dead, man is but dead. none of the none of the clients, none of, none of the people who avail themselves of it. The only one who winds up spending their life in prison is the woman. That's kind yeah. of crazy. It's kind of a manly energy, though. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. I don't, I don't know about that, but I, I, this is my this is my point about all the the people who availed themselves. Like we will never know, and we won't because this woman is keeping all of their secrets, and she's basically. Epstein took it to their grave. She's going to go to jail. And we're never going to know whether uh, hmm. Prince Andrew or Clinton or Trump or any of them, Dershowitz, and any of those other um, people who were certainly hanging around with Epstein, whether they were part of this. Is, is, now, you I'm know, not the closest follower of the royals either, but I think that we pretty much know that Prince Andrew was involved, right? I, I, how I do we know that? I don't know. I don't know, but um, but I think he's he's definitely royal non grata now. He's had to give up all his uh, public responsibilities. Uh, but anyway, look, I mean, I don't know, Sarah. You raised an interesting question. Is she going to keep all these secrets? I mean, there is now the prison system does have a lot of leverage over her. I mean, they can make life incredibly difficult or much easier for her behind bars, depending on whether she agrees to cooperate. That that could be that could be something. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's a bill here. I think that that would be something, and I hope they really do. You know, you hate to make life too easy for this woman, frankly, but on the other hand, it would be very much worth knowing what happened. You feel like we're at the stage of the, uh, I guess I'm thinking of the Catholic Church scandal, which maybe is, you know, similar. And JVL mentioned this century. That was, I guess, mostly at the end of the last century, though it spilled into this century. Uh, you know, it started off 
I won't say small, but you know, isolated cases, and it got all the way to the very top of the American church, obviously, and and all kinds of people ended up coming down, and they peeled that one back. I think in both cases, incidentally, what I'm struck by is uh, the role of the media. I mean, I don't know that this happens without Julie Brown of the Miami Herald investigating this with all respect to the criminal justice system, which I think is, mm-hmm. as, as, as people have said, is, is doing pretty well as our institutions go. Uh, Julie Brown was indefatigable, and I, I didn't follow this very closely, but my impression is she really uh, was indefatigable and continued to pull on this, all the strings and and uh, sort of forced almost the prosecutors to, to take a fresh look and so forth. And and that's an interesting case. I mean, she's a reporter. I don't know her at all. So I say this, that I'm not one of those who likes the media praising itself all the time and patting itself on the back and giving itself First Amendment prizes. So I say this all against my normal tendency to <laughs> scoff at that stuff. You know, she's a reporter at a, a regional paper, a big paper in Miami, but uh, the kind of papers that are not doing well, the kind of papers that are cutting staff. And it's, you know, she, but it was a local, there was a story down there, obviously, and she pursued it. Uh, and you do, you know, that's an important part of our ecosystem of justice, if you if you will, yeah. that maybe isn't as strong as, as other parts. And so I give her personal credit, but I worry about the future with fewer Miami heralds and fewer uh, reporters like you know, experienced reporters who are, you know, with enough uh, backing from editors and, and sort of other reporters to put together a team to really investigate this kind of thing. They really did some good, you know, as in the case of the church with the, with the Boston Globe. Yeah, I was about to say the Boston Globe uh, really broke that story wide open, the, uh, the priest abuse scandal. And there's a great movie about it called Spotlight, highly recommended. It's important to remember that that it was the work of that paper. And then, of course, it became a worldwide scandal with uh, the Catholic Church. All right, let us, uh, let us move on to our thoughts about the coming year. Um, I am hoping that we, you know, can think of some things that, well, I, I would be curious to hear from all of you, the things you um, are predicting will happen versus the things that you uh, would love to see happen. So I'm going to start with you, Jonathan V. Last. Um, what's one prediction that is something you think will happen in 2022? Uh, I think we're going to be over a million dead from COVID by mid-April. And I suspect that you're going to increasingly see Republicans and the denizens of conservative ink using that as a way to attack the Biden administration, which will will be like an arsonist running around complaining about the fire department. <laughs> but I think it's going to work. And I, I think it's going to be a very effective line of attack uh, for Republicans. And uh, I, I think that is just one vector along which we should expect 2022 to be a, a very, very difficult year and a very bad year politically. Can I just just chime in on one thing? I on was this just going to come to you, say. Tim. Yeah. yeah well, I, do you rather think that's than a, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned it's right. And I was yesterday. I saw before going to bed. I was. I'm wondering if I'm having a year in cold like hallucinations. Um, and I'm on on the internet, and I looked at our friends over at the National Review. And they had an article to Jonathan's very point that says, where does Donald Trump go for his apology? <laughs> and I, I, I had to, I looked at the date twice. I was like, is this, de-? I was like, December 20th, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> 2021, December 29th. 
Unbelievable. Yeah, over COVID and how he wasn't actually that bad. This comes a week after all of those reveals that if you haven't read Jonathan's triad from what was it last week, uh, all the email, internal emails just about how irresponsible the Trump administration was and trying to cover it up and make it look as not bad and protect him as he as he ran into his reelection. Uh, uh, the National Review is is making this very argument that Jonathan made. So it's uh, so to me that is relevant because that speaks to the, to the fact that it is going to have purchase. Because say what you want about all the flaws of those folks and um, and how much they went along with Trump, maybe to degrees that I wouldn't have. Uh, like to, you know, they, they've they not been the ones who go along with the most bad faith, Dan Bongino, gateway pundit, um, federalist type stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, from time to time, they've been a check on that. And for them to be making this very bad faith argument that Jonathan lays out, that, that Joe Biden is a failure and that it's his failure is his fault and that it, actually there was nothing that really could be done about this and, and Donald Trump did as, as well as could be about COVID. Um, I, I think that that is a sign that 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 line of argument is going to resonate, and and certainly I think it will also resonate with your more, oh, what would you call it, kind of your barstool sports listening, Joe Rogan listening, kind of not not quite as political um, type uh, 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 type person as well, who who just kind of wants to be told that they can you know go to the go to bars and do shots and have no responsibility and do whatever they want. So I think it will be effective in, in both those kind of groups, the softer Republicans well, and then the and, less and engaged. with the same idiot voters who like in Sarah's focus group talk about how you know <laughs> why should Terry McAuliffe get a third term? You know the, the, the idiot voters who know nothing will be like, yeah, well, I guess more people died under Biden than under Trump, so I guess. Trump was better at it. And so I don't want to yeah. get too hot here, but that is an obscene argument. And because Republicans have both at the media level and at the level of elected office, high office across this country, actively worked against the Biden administration, which God knows has not been perfect. You know, I, I could tick off three different things for you that the Biden administration has been very suboptimal on. But they have they have taken the idea of fighting COVID seriously. They have tried to implement various programs to to reduce the death count, and they have been opposed at a at a policy level by Republican governors and Republican legislatures who who frankly have been willing to trade the lives of American citizens for an attempt to weaken Joe Biden. And it is absolutely obscene, and it, it it makes me pretty angry. And what makes me even angrier is that the American people are not going to hold them to account for this. But let's let, so, yeah, Billy. I mean, I just let's let's get back to that piece because it is very interesting. I, I haven't read it, of course, but so I'm going to say the idea of the the headline of that piece is very interesting. But it's by Rich Lowry. It's National Review, like any magazine, publishes a ton of stuff, and not all of it, you know, it represents some diversities of views, and some of it's more irresponsible. This is by the editor, the outgoing editor, Rich, who's edited it for. What moto? Maybe twenty five years, I think. Yeah, he, something he was like already that. editor when I when we began the weekly. Well, no, it was just after we began the weekly set. Yes, a little over twenty years, and um, this was, I guess, the last PC he'll write as editor uh, before Ramesh takes over. And he went out of his what way. a valedictory. Yeah, but he went to think about the piece, just the headline. You could have written a very tough piece on the Biden administration. I think they really do deserve quite a lot of criticism on testing and on other things and messaging and you know other issues. Of course, foreign policy. You could have written a real kind of liberalism fails once again. I look forward to a, a bright conservative future with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it won't be our kind of conservative future, but it would be not a crazy piece. He went goes out of his way to defend Trump, to put Trump yep. in the in the headline. Why? 
because they are laying the groundwork for acquiescing to, if not flat out supporting Trump as the Republican nominee in 2024, and certainly supporting him in the general election against you know Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is. So this is a signal, the end of 2021, after everything, that they're not going to fight very hard to save the Republican Party from Trump, even to save it for someone whom I think most of us wouldn't, you know, think much of, you know, a DeSantis type, but still not at least tr- at least not Trump himself. They are white. This is implicitly totally whitewashing January six, whitewashing his unbelievably grotesque handling of the of COVID and everything else he did, incidentally, yeah. uh, the demagoguery, because they are willing to go along. That's for me. That's what's significant about it. This is a signal that conservatism Inc. to use JVL's term is fine with Trump in 2024. Yeah. Sarah, I think the last uh, few years have shown us that we shouldn't expect coherence uh, from uh, the right uh, in their arguments. On the other hand, you do have to say this will be quite a pivot, right? From saying that really um, COVID is either not a real disease, nothing to worry about, uh, or that will go away on its own, or a vast conspiracy, which is now kind of the line that you hear from right-wing precincts, a vast conspiracy to take your liberty um, and, uh, and, and you know, false uh, panic about a mild disease that's just like the flu and is just being used to impose, you know, communism on, uh, on right-thinking Americans. And then they're going to now pivot to it's terrible that so many people have died of COVID under under Biden. That's that's quite a pivot. Yeah, but we know now that the shamelessness <laughs> is 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 never ending. Um, and yep. did you, something JBL just said, you know, about the elected officials who were trying to thwart Biden's agenda. I mean, the biggest problem has been sort of the right wing megaphone though. It's been the Tucker Carlson's and everybody downstream from there, from Candace Owens to these Joe Rogans, who have kicked up all kinds of suspicion around the vaccine, number one, which is our best um like miracle cure. But then they also do this weird moving the goalpost things. Like this, there's this narrative on Twitter that I'm seeing right now where everybody's like, see guys, it's just a cold. Look at how all of these guys are pivoting their arguments about, you know, now we should be staying open. Now we shouldn't be closing down schools without any acknowledgement that the situation has changed radically from two <laughs> years ago. Not only do we know a lot more, not only does this strain seem to be uh, less deadly, but also so many more people are vaccinated. Uh, and like that is, that's contributing to the diminishment of the severity uh, in this particular moment. Although I would also stipulate there's still a whole bunch we don't know about Omicron. I hope that there's not a, that, that deaths don't, you know, the, the deaths are a lagging indicator. And so I think we're still early in it, but I, all signs point to the fact that this is less deadly, but it's it, the idea that the science would change as our information and as our uh, care options change, and that that's an indictment somehow of the scientific community yeah. is just absolutely insane. I, I want to go back though, to this idea, um, uh, two things. One, I know we're supposed to be doing predictions and we we should probably be taking turns, but Bill just kind of hit on mine, which is that I think that my 2022 prediction is that after the, what I think are going to be tough uh, midterms for the Democrats and a lot of Trump allies are going to be swept into office in 2022, I think he's going to announce that he's running again. That's my 2022 prediction. And I, and I also want to agree with JVL's assessment, just based on what I know, talking to lots and lots of voters 
that COVID is going to become an albatross around Joe Biden's neck, in part because he did run really on uh, part on the idea that, you know, we could defeat the virus. And as long as that's not happening, it's just going to be one of these things where people who aren't super politically engaged and following the back and forth are going to think, boy, this thing's not gone. I mean, that's that's a big part of why his numbers have been where they've been. But also, you know, I know JBL said there are things he could tick through. You know, there's that, what's that, that old line about, um, you shouldn't attribute to malice what can be adequately explained by incompetence. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. I think that the Trump way of handling COVID was with malice. Like I would attribute malice. They lied to people. They knew what was coming. They they specifically slowed down the testing. You know, Trump said it out loud. There's malice. Do you remember the Woodward book where he said it's really a bad disease. It's terrible. And then he went out, the, the Woodward revealed in his book, and then he went out in the public and said, uh, it will go away. It's nothing. Go away. It's like the flu. Go to work. No problem. Get yeah. out there. Live your lives. Yeah. Okay. So that's malice. I do think that the competency that we wanted from the Biden administration has not necessarily manifested. And there are things just like right now, there are lines around blocks for tests. Yep. Like you cannot go get tested right now to find out if you have it so that you don't spread it. And there are tools that should be accessible to us that aren't. And that doesn't mean that Biden hasn't faced just total disinformation campaigns from white, the right-wing ecosystem that have kept people from being vaccinated, which is a big part of the reason we still are where they are. And he doesn't deserve the blame for that. On the other hand, there are things that we feel like they, sh- I feel like they should have been capable of doing that we should have seen from this government that would give people the confidence that Democrats can govern effectively so that they don't turn around and be like, yeah, yeah I don't know, Donald Trump wasn't that bad or it's all a wash. Like, don't give them the hammer to hit you with. And you can debate, and I certainly would, and I would take JVL's side on the the uh, bad faithness of it all. But I also am not going to necessarily, I wouldn't call them idiot voters. People who are less engaged are not going to know. They're just going to know that it's all still bad. Yeah. Bill Crystal has been banging the drum for ages about the testing problem and uh, proved absolutely right. Tim Miller, I second everything that that Sarah just said. The sense I get is that the Biden administration is making a mistake that's somewhat analogous to the mistake, strangely, that the Obama administration made uh, in its first term, because though Obama did go on to to be reelected, when he first came into office, we were in the midst of a financial crisis. People wanted the administration to focus on that, to focus on getting us out of the the deep hole that we were in. And they wanted to talk about health care. And it was just off topic. And the voters punished them badly for it uh, in 2010. Arguably, the Biden administration has done a version of that. They've, they, you know, where people wanted him to focus on the virus, and he did to a degree, but not enough. He focused, he, his attention was distracted by Build Back Better and the other things. Do, do you agree or disagree? Um, I kind of agree. I guess I guess I would disagree with the the just direct statement that people wanted him to focus on the virus. I think there was a certain group of people that are mostly Biden voters, frankly, that wanted him to focus on the bi- virus and and ha- are a little bit frustrated uh, with the lack of focus and in, in, in areas like testing and some such. I just yeah, you know, people incorporate their real life experience, you know, and just to this testing thing that I was in New Orleans this weekend and and I was just kind of walking around and I I noticed that we were by the Zulu 
social club and there's this huge group outside of it. And I was like, oh, maybe there's something fun. Maybe they're having a Christmas thing at the at the at the social club. It's one of the Mardi Gras clubs. And and you know, walk down two blocks to see what the fuss is about. And to Sarah's point, lines around the block for COVID testing uh, next yep. door to the club. And that's what it is. And so people see that and they they do get frustrated, uh, you know, because it's crimping, you know, how they they want to be safe. You know, they want to be able to um uh you know, go and spend the holidays with, with family and not feel worried that they're putting, you know, their great aunt at risk or whatever. And so I, I think that there's frustration with that. I think more, if I was going to criticize them more, though, I, I think that it would be to the externalities related to COVID, right? The inflation, you know, things of that nature. Uh, that's another thing that people experience in their day-to-day lives. And, and I think that there was a period of time you know, that is now passed, but where the Biden administration was really not focusing on that and was really doing a lot of the navel gazing of the DC machinations about BBB and the BIF, et cetera. When meanwhile, people are seeing their grocery and gas prices skyrocket. I, I think they've made a good pivot on that. Um, I, I think that there's reason I'm going to do some sunshine pumping. I think that there's reason to believe that some of those externalities will come back into, you know, a pretty manageable place by next summer, um, TBD uh, on everything with the virus uh, these days. So, so potentially, I think that there could be some good news for Biden coming coming into the midterms. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I think that um, I think that there was a the period of time over the summer into the fall where you know the voters were were the the country was looking for a response to a couple of very real problems. You know, Delta rising, inflation, gas prices. And the Biden administration was talking about a lot of more esoteric stuff. I, I think that they've pivoted away from that. You know, we'll kind of see what happens when we get back into the new year on voting rights and BBB. Do they just, you know, pull out a couple of items for BBB that are popular, that they can say will help speak to inflation, that they will say will help speak to some of the problems that people are, are, are worried about? Um, we'll see. Bill Crystal, a prediction for 2022. Hey, uh, even Tim Miller, Mr. Sunshine, who has his wonderful piece, you should all read in the Bulwark Thursday morning, and it'll be up, I'm sure, through the weekend, since we have so little sunshine in the Bulwark sometimes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just the way the world of the Bulwark, the world in which the Bulwark operates. But yeah, it's a good piece. It's nice to read some fiction, you know, just before the uh, <laughs> yeah, Just really quick, can year. I just yeah. speak to myself, because I'm getting a lot of this. The article, the which, which shows you that, you know, maybe my, my skills as a writer or JVL skills as an editor aren't up to par, I don't know, but the article's about... <laughs> How all the badness, you know, does not need to completely infect all the things that bring us joy in our lives. And I feel like that is a uniquely modern problem. So that does not mean bad things are not happening. It just means we should also allow ourselves to to look at the positive things that are happening. So that is a good article, and it's a true it's a true statement, sentiment, and a true statement. And it it can be going through about. A third of my cup of coffee, the first cup of coffee this morning. It was good. It was good. Uh, what do I, I don't know. So the little thing I wrote for the Bulwark, which I, uh, I suggest that this could be a big foreign policy year. And it could be the first year, I would say since 2007, I think, where foreign, where you would say it was sort of defined by foreign policy. I think this, you know, Iraq war and the aftermath, obviously the aftermath of 9-11 uh, before that. Uh, and then the surge through 07, we had sort of six or seven years where the main news in the U.S. was foreign policy. Uh, after that, since then, it's been domestic policy or some issues that are tinged with foreign policy, obviously, you know, Putin interfering in the elections or immigration and stuff, but not real foreign policy, if I can put it that way. I kind of feel like with Putin and and Ukraine, with Xi and China, uh, with Iran moving ahead, with the Biden administration facing real decisions, I think, in all these areas where they've 
done some stuff, not as much as maybe I would have them do, sent some mixed messages, but they're tough. I'm not sitting here sort of simply second guessing tough, tough choices in the real world. We could have a year that, you know, I think COVID hopefully, uh, Omicron's going so fast that actually I think it could weirdly do a lot of damage and then be kind of semi almost over by the end of February. Hopefully we don't get another bad variant. The economy might just, you know, be kind of normal and pretty good actually. And maybe inflation comes down. So we could uh, weirdly, and leaving aside the minor issue of saving democracy in America, which no, you know, we care about. And unfortunately it's not clear that anyone else cares as much about, but, uh, we could have a pretty foreign policy focused focused year. 2022 could be a year where the world comes roaring back and reminds us that even if we would prefer to focus on domestic policy for a while, the world may not allow us to. Yeah, Sarah, um, it is amazing. Uh, You're a little younger, so you won't remember this in your own life, but just having known about it. But That was nice under the the, a little. That was good. That was, you know, you and I. We're yeah. taking that. Tim and Sarah are just a little bit younger than yeah, we just are. Just a That's little younger. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, a few months. Yeah, yeah right. Um, <laughs> I look forward to providing a child's opinion here. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, for, for, for me, and I'm sure for Bill, for you too, it is really remarkable to see the, these right-wing pundits spouting these Russia-justifying narratives that were so cliched from the left. Putin feels encircled. You know, we are the aggressors here. Um, anyway, it's, it's kind of, um, kind of an amazing thing, but, uh, do Can you, I interrupt uh, and say Mona wrote an excellent book, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you? <laughs> what, what was it? Seriously, about this, what, 20 years ago? I can't remember now. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was almost 20. It was uh, 2003, I think, called Useful Idiots. Yeah. And uh, which was about the, the liberals' response to the Cold War and how they were always unwilling to confront the true nature of the enemy and always hoping that through sort of mirror imaging that they were really just like us and so on. And um, that's funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's really just beyond depressing to see how people have flipped. And, uh, And now you're seeing all these justifications. I mean, Tucker Carlson defended Putin. What Sarah, do you remember this? He, he did, it was a few months ago. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he, uh, I think it was over Ukraine, but anyway, he he explicitly on his show defended Putin, and of course, the the right in this country is sidling up to the Orbans of the world and other uh, authoritarians, and you know, making it very clear that they're not against authoritarianism; they're much more against American progressives than they are against authoritarians abroad. Yeah. I mean, look, I was born in 1980, so I'm like a Cold War baby. I remember your book, Useful Idiots. Uh, <laughs> but, the, but, but the question is really, because I, I can't explain it. What I can tell you is that in this past five or six years, being somebody who was, came up through not just, not just sort of the right, but the kind of conservative right where they give you a lot of intellectual fodder about what it means to be a conservative, how that's tied into like the greatness of the American experiment, freedom, and uh, and how our relationships with other countries and like how we fought the communists. And the, you know, I mean, just uh, what's crazy to me is, is the whole funhouse mirror mm-hmm. of the GOP, the way that that I, everything that I understood about it and what it believed and what it stood for and what drew me to it is now some weird 
like some of it is, I mean, some of it's an actual reversal, like the Russia stuff, right? That's just like, you're just on the opposite side. You're saying the opposite of everything I know to be true about American conservatism, of everything Reagan said. Um, and then other parts of it are like a weird bastardized version. So like I, I came up you know, where a lot of people talked about the importance of of men and the traditional family. And I had, you know, I engaged with that a lot because I had I didn't quite share the opinion, but I saw a lot of value in the conversation. I thought that talking about male virtues was was important and that there were good ways to channel those things. But like watching Josh Hawley talk about manliness now or or Tucker Carlson or the right, and it really is this kind of gross, toxic, anti-family. I mean, I, it's, it's all, it's all so, such a bizarro world that I feel completely detached for it. And what I can understand mostly is the people who defend this version of the Republican party as though it were just, you know, I was having a fight with good friend of the pod, Josh Crashour today that started on Twitter and moved over to a more private back and forth. But and I, I won't go into all of it, but the, the, he was kind of saying Hillary Clinton was being alarmist for suggesting that if Donald Trump is, again, the Republican nominee, that that'll be the end of democracy as we know it. Um, and I get this a lot from sort of people who still look at the right and say, well, this is, these guys are still mostly good. They're mostly normal. And yes, the Overton window has moved on what sane is and what normal is, but they're still basically that party that we liked is still in there somewhere. And it's like barely in there. Like this is the thing that I just, I can't connect with anymore is it's like 10%. Like they, one of the arguments he made, I don't want to characterize too much like his position, but I just, it was, was like, isn't it democratic to engage with voters on the things they want to hear about? And my pushback to that would be, well, if the vast majority of the Republican party, the issue they want to hear about is that the election was stolen, well, then that's a lie. And no, you shouldn't engage with that. And that is bad. And so like, anyway, I just feel like it is all, it's the am I taking crazy pills Jeff all day long with the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, JVL, I want to hear you on this topic because you're our, you're our resident commie. Um, so <laughs> was there ever a time where you felt attracted to the Republican Party at all? The, did, was the conservative critique of America appealing to you? And and is there anything left of that in your in your political vocabulary now? I mean the you know, the conservative. So I'm I'm in between Sarah and Tim and you and Bill. Uh, I'm I'm sort of center meat of the Gen X cohort. So I for me the Cold War was very real and. Uh, but I, I came up in a world where the Democrats were not really the worst of the actual sympathy towards the Soviet Union was passed. Mm -hmm. That was really a, a relic of the 60s and 70s. Instead, what you had was the Democrats were just weak on foreign policy, right? They, it wasn't that they were sympathetic to the Soviets, but that they, you know, Carter himself actually became much tougher on the Soviets after uh, year two of his administration. He did. Um, but that they were just generally weak on foreign policy and they weren't, uh, they weren't interested in expanding freedom and, and countering the Soviets in hard ways. And I, I found that attractive because I, I believe in liberalism and I, you know, the, the Republican Party and conservatism itself, maybe I should say more conservatism itself, conservatism itself was at least superficially invested in liberalism. And I think that is objectively no longer true. 
for me, I mean, the, the academic question is always, were they ever invested in liberalism or was that just a convenient argument for what they wanted at the moment? Yeah, and I don't, I don't have the answer for that. Uh, but what, what we see now is, you know, Bill and I talked about this last week about the, what happens when you have both rotten people and rotten elites. You know, a, a culture can survive rotten people and a culture can survive rotten elites. Whether it can survive having both at the same time is, is I think, anybody's guess. And we have voters who are stupid and who, to the extent that they are not stupid, want bad things. They want anti-democratic things. They want minority rule. Not all the voters, but, you know, a good 40% of them. That's a lot. And you also then have elites who no longer are moored towards anything other than power for the sake of power. And that leads you to a very dark place. And that is what conservatism is now. There is, there is no, and again, my, I, when people, cause people ask me this all the time and my, my response is, you know, I am conservative in disposition, meaning that I, I just believe that everything good we have in the world is tenuous. Everything is much more delicate than we imagine it to be. And if we monkey with anything, it is very possible that we'll make it worse. In fact, maybe even likely that we'll make it worse, which is sort of, I think, a classic conservative view of, of life. But what the, the people who, that is no longer what conservatism means. Conservatism now means nothing but the seizing of power for the sake of power. And if that requires creating novel legal interpretations of existing law, uh, for instance, surrounding the Electoral Count Act, then conservatism is perfectly happy to do it. And this is, I just don't know that it's survivable. You know, there, there is a sense of, you know, oh, there's a crisis looming out there on the horizon. You know, 2024 could be a crisis. And I, I just reject that. The crisis is now. We are in the middle of a crisis. It is an ongoing crisis of the regime. And whether or not we will all get out of this intact, I think is a very open question. My newsletter did not land with Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, I, let me, let me pose to you something, repeat what the point that Sarah made. I completely agree that you do have this sense of taking crazy pills when you read uh, editorials like Rich Lowry's or, which I haven't read either, but uh, the, the headline, uh, but also, you know, the, the, the Wall Street Journal editorial page where they are constantly expecting the Republican Party to revert to what it was, and and they are blithely indifferent to the the threats to uh, our system. And it's it's kind of you know it's just it's gobsmacking. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I I would I, mean, I, I point a lot of this to self interest, but it, but some of it to threat assessment. And I, you know, a trend I've been noticing is, I, look, all these guys, the Wall Street Journal, Edward National Review, all these guys that we talk about, like they all live in blue America, right? And so I, I think that they are hyper attuned to their annoyances about blue America, to the things, you know, to the to the you know most extreme comment made by a person at their kid's school. You know, mm -hmm. to you know the the stupidest city council person in their city's comments, right? And 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 I think that they're hyper attuned to this and the threats to the left and the AOCs, and we can go on and on, and and completely shield themselves from what is happening 
in the real Republican Party, right? Um, there's this great New Yorker article uh, by Evan Osnos, who's awesome, about uh, Dan Bongino. Yep, and I, I mean, Dan Bongino's audience is like 10x, 20x, 30x, I don't know, but a lot x that Rich Lowry's now. Um, and, and yet, these guys don't even read that. Like, they, they don't engage with him. They consider him a clown. You know, they don't... Um, there, there's no critiques. They're, they're self, the self-appointed media critics on the right, you know, all, always focus on Brian Stelter or whoever on the left is annoying them. They don't talk about what's happening in, in among the, the people that their voters actually read. And so I, I think the crazy pills thing is, is related to that, right? Like that is like they, they have, they're, they're making an argument from a world that does not exist where the biggest threat is you know, Chessa uh, here at, as a prosecutor in San Francisco, you know, and not the angry, hungry alligators that are right underneath them. And so, you know, I, I think that is kind of what, you know, explains what explains what they're, you know, why when why we look at what they're doing with such bewilderment, because it's just a completely different assessment of, of our political moment. If I could just add one word, I mean, I, I think, I think it's true of a lot of friends and acquaintances of ours who are just, I, I think, misassessing the threat assessment. And, and as you say, part of it is where they live. I'm struck by academics I know who, of course, don't want authoritarianism of the right, but you know that's what they face every day is a different kind of harassment from the left. And and they just uh, yeah make that a little bigger than it is and, and make the a threat of uh, Trumpist populist authoritarianism much less than it is. But you know, well, some of these people don't get that excuse, in my opinion. Certainly the elected officials don't. And I would even say the journal, National Review, at some point you do have to ask, and this is a question that we've discussed in the past, I think David Frum has a nice formulation for it, that Trumpism is not at some point a bug, it's a feature, right? The authoritarianism is a feature. The mm-hmm. the the intolerance, the, the, the threats, the violence, those aren't just unfortunate things that they're more tolerant than they should be. They're things that at some level, not too far beneath the surface, they kind of want because they they want what they want more than they 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 don't like american democracy they don't like the direction the country's going and they they're they're willing to embrace and at some point they almost become eager to embrace uh any measures to to defeat it so i i do think there's some distinction between the people who are we would regard them as slightly just uh, deceiving themselves uh but, but that's slid over among some of these people to a real um, to tolerance of, and then even some, I'd say, defense of and embrace of a true anti-democratic and liberal uh, measures. Well, that's that's a a really, that's such an important point, Bill, because look, I mean, early on in the whole Trump phenomenon, you could have said, well, you know, people are just not accurately reading the, the threat and they don't recognize what a, what a profound uh, danger this is. But I think post-Trump administration and post-January 6th, no, nobody gets the benefit of the doubt anymore. It's, it's right out there. They know what they're endorsing. And when the, you know, when the National Review, I'm sorry, when they're preparing the ground to say, yeah, we could welcome Trump back, that's, they don't uh, get credit for being truly devoted to American democracy. JVL. Mona, if you want to talk about the, the the violence and the authoritarian aspect of this, the liberal aspect of it becoming a, a feature, not a bug, look at the conservative reaction to Kyle Rittenhouse following his acquittal. Um, 
I, I look, I did not follow every in and out of the Rittenhouse trial. I am perfectly willing to believe that 12 reasonable people could could say that he acted within the, the confines of Wisconsin law uh, in terms of self-defense. Fine. I don't think any reasonable person could look at that situation and see it as anything other than a tragic series of events in which a bunch of people who should not have been there, including the people who Rittenhouse killed, all got mixed up in something that was much bigger and much more serious than they understood. And none of them behaved responsibly. And two lives were ended. And another kid, a kid's life, was marked in in a terrible, terrible way. And instead of treating this kid like he is a plane crash survivor, he is being carted around like a conquering hero. For what? For killing two human beings. The President of the United States, former President of the United States, I'm sorry, hosts him at Mar-a-Lago. He goes on Fox News, a whole bunch of different shows. He is feted and as a, as a featured keynote speaker at TPUSA. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to I don't know how to characterize the embrace of somebody who's notable only for killing two human beings. That's literally the only thing he's notable for as a hero. I don't know how to identify that as anything but a thirst for blood and violence. I don't either. All right. Look, this has been a a wonderful, cheerful, uplifting end of the year podcast um, full of sweetness and light. I'm going to close with a what I think is a slightly amusing story, and anybody else who has some final thoughts can go first. So I'll I'll hold off on mine. Bill Crystal, any um, more uh, sweetness in life from you? Well, since I guess I'm the oldest person on this podcast, yes, I remember when we thought we were losing the Cold War, and I was thinking about this this week because, of course, uh, December 25th, 1991, 30 years ago, was when. The Soviet Union dissolved. I was in the Bush White House then and sort of paying pretty close attention and pretty amazed to be a tiny, tiny part of a massive historic moment. And then today, uh, as we're discussing, it's December 30th, is the 99th anniversary of the official formation of the Soviet Union, which I think was was December 30th, 1922. It it, it existed, obviously, for three or four years before that. Uh, And so that seemed pretty grim it many times. There were fantastic dissidents who spoke up when it really seemed hopeless to do so. They were just doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do. Sharansky and Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn and others. And uh, and it fell apart. So, you know, things can turn uh, in a positive way as well as in a negative way. And, um, and so if I can uh, sound like Tim Miller here for eight seconds, I'll just say that that could happen this year or over the next three years. Excellent. That's, that's absolutely right. Sarah, did you want to close with something? Oh, now I have to say something positive? No, you don't. <laughs> don't. If you if you just have any closing thoughts, we'd we'd love to hear them. <laughs> so, this is a stray thought, but it is something that I'm I'm sort of worried about. Worried's not the right word, but that I'm thinking about a lot, which is that I had said before about the Overton window moving on what bad is. But it is possible. I see something shaping up where, you know, it looked a lot like you were going to get really worst case scenarios in 22 of people running. You know, Sean Parnell, Eric Greitens, Josh Mandel, um, Herschel Walker, uh, and and what's and and Mo Brooks, who was the warm up act for Trump on on Insurrection Day, um, which incidentally is not November 3rd, but actually January 6th. And actually, I wonder if we we don't end up with both a better but 
somewhat worst case scenario, which is that you actually get the standard deviation won over from all of those people. That they're all still super MAGA. They're all still say that 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 January sixth, you know, wasn't a big deal. That the, they they run on a big lie platform, um, and so they're still anti democratic, but they're not as crazy as transparently and obvious crazy. Like, what if you end up with actually J D Vance and uh, and and you know Sean Dina Parnell Powell's dropped husband. out. Uh, who? Dina, Dina Powell's Powell. husband or Doctor Ross? You know, I mean, Sean Parnell's out now, and you get and you get somebody else, and so. And that allows people to say, well, see, this isn't so bad uh, Mm -hmm. because it's not the craziest, but it is still (laughs) on a, on an objective metric scale, very, very bad. You know, it's like, it's like Purdue, you get Purdue running against Kemp. Purdue is actively challenging Kemp because Kemp didn't do enough to overturn the elections. Now somebody can look at David Purdue and say, well, that's a normal guy, standard Republican. And yet what he is saying is very bad. And so anyway, that is a concern I have for 22, not uplifting at all. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, arguably worse to have the less crazies prevail because they're still crazy. Tim Miller? Yeah, David Purdue is a standard Republican, I guess. I guess the point is, is I guess right. the, the question is, how do you conceive of what a standard Republican is? I'll, I'll give you a little uplifting number. You know, we've focused a lot on the negatives around Afghanistan this past year and, you know, a lot on people's heartlessness around COVID and other stuff. But in response to that, I, you know, I'd done some work in the past with the refugee organizations around here um, in the Bay Area and I like reached out to all of them and be like, what can we do to help on the Afghanistan thing? And obviously there's some of it that's money and, and resources for refugees who are coming to town. Uh, but the thing that really caught me off guard is, they had a gathering around here uh, for people that wanted to help, and it was—I mean, it's, it was packed. Um, mm. You know, like there, there was actually more people wanting to help um, than there were, you know, kind of families that were coming into our area that, you know, that needed assistance, right? And, um, and you know, whether it was, you know, driving people to appointments or, you know, helping them with job training or English stuff. And, you know, I, I think that it was just, it, it was a nice reminder that there is a constant, in the spirit of my article this morning, there's a constant reminder of everyone's, you know, badness and selfishness you know, right now, and we're, we're, you know, forced to look at all of the, you know, the craziest Karens in the Walmart and the guy shouting, you know, intimidating people because he won't, won't wear his mask. And, and, uh, you know, I, I there, it, it is not as if, you know, we're bereft of folks around us who are, you know, wanting to be helpers. And that is, you know, in the spirit of where we are at the end of the year. So that's my, that's my little bit of cheer for you, Mona. Yeah. No, thank you, Tim. That's really, that's great. I, I'm going to just add to that real quick with a, a, a quick story from my own experience. I was out walking my dog a few weeks ago and I saw a lady, an older lady who was uh, ahead of me down a couple blocks ahead and I saw her take a tumble. So I rushed over and, you know, she had some skin knees and she was upset, but she was okay. And I waited with her until her husband could come. And I wound up chatting with her about her life. And guess what? She was hosting an entire family of Afghanistan refugees wow. um, in, in her home. So just somebody randomly that I met because she stumbled on the street. Um, okay, JVL. Uh, you know, I would just say, I, again, I've been pretty dark today, and I, I apologize about that. I don't mean <laughs> to be the cooler in this room. But uh, if 
when people feel overwhelmed by what's going on, um, and they, they, I get a lot of emails about this, you know, like I, I feel terrible. I look at the world, you know, how, how can I help? Who should I give to, you know, which, which organizations are fighting this, this hardest? My response is always, uh, don't try to fix the world. You can't fix the world. Um, the world is, is going to, you know, we, there are 330 million cogs in the machine right now. Uh, what you can do is have an impact on your world. And so, you know, f- find a food pantry in your your neighborhood or your local area. Go give to them. Uh, if you want to influence politics, find out whoever does voter registration jo- drives in your area and either give them money or, or even better, go and help them register voters. On election day, drive five people to the polls. Literally, just it. You know, five five people you know, or five people that the, the you know your your local party who you support says you know need help getting getting there and back. Uh, focus on on the world around you if you want to make an impact and and try to make it better. Don't don't worry about the world because none of us can fix the world on our own, but each of us can have real and measurable impacts on on our worlds if we try. Excellent. And if I, if you don't mind my saying so, that is a deep conservative insight as well, that local action is more possible and more effective than centralized national action. All right. Here's my quick story. People, listeners to Beg to Differ know that my son, Ben Parker, um, is also affiliated with the Bulwark, senior editor. I have other sons. One of them is a history grad student and uh, so he and his colleagues, you know, they have some teaching responsibilities to undergrads. And he was telling me about, a, so this is apropos of the, you know, the terrible wokeness at universities. And I don't deny that there's a lot of wokeness, but I love this story. So a colleague of his was telling uh, my son, David, that, uh, that, you know, she, that she has a student who is an absolute hardcore Leninist. And so David said, really? She said, oh, yeah, he's he's really hardcore. She said, he said, well, what are you doing with, with this kid? She said, well, I've been sort of inviting him to read some other things, and I've been sort of gently trying to coax him into seeing things from a slightly different perspective. So David said, so then you are literally indoctrinating your students into liberalism. <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> I was hoping the story was ending that he's a bulwark reader now. We have a couple oh. of Leninists out there, I think, in the bulwark audience. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should. I trust gay Leninists, you know. <laughs> I mean, I thought the punchline was going to be that they started, well, I started pushing Paul McCartney on it. <laughs> really, you know, John is overrated as an influence. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for participating in this uh, year end wrap up. Uh, there will be no podcast tomorrow. But uh, next week, Charlie Sykes, the great Charlie Sykes, will return, and we hope all of our listeners have a joyous and fulfilling 2022, and we look forward to continuing the conversation then. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Peace. Happy New Year. Peace. Happy New Year.